Alrighty, um, why don't we go ahead and get started. So, <clears throat> uh, this morning we're going to be covering a big chunk of text, and so I'm going to be doing I'm going to be doing a few things. The first thing I want to do is I want to spend some time looking at the genre that First Kings is, and it's called a historical narrative. And then by kind of observing what this what form this genre takes. Um, we're actually going to see some like really amazing truths from Scripture that I really hope can give us um, encouragement for our lives. And in particular, this sermon is for uh, for us. <laughs> so let me okay. So I, I feel like something I've observed about myself um, as I've grown up. Uh, this sermon and this section in the Book of Kings is a lot about fathers and sons. Or another way of saying it, it's about parents and children. And what I've learned as I've grown older is as a kid, your relationship with your parents changes a lot over time. When you start out, um, you, often, uh, you often want to differentiate yourself from your parents and you say, I'm nothing like you, dad. I'm nothing like you, mom. My parents are the worst, and I'm nothing like them. I'm so different. And so you, like, rebel. You don't appreciate maybe their good qualities very much, and you, um, you do all that you can to differentiate yourself. And, I mean, honestly, like, psychologists have a term called self-differentiation. This is, like, this is all a true observation about a very typical pattern that you see in the ways p parents relate to their kids. But one thing you notice is as you grow up, as you grow up and get older, before you said about your parents, I'm nothing like you, and then one morning you wake up and you look in the mirror and you're like, wait a second. I am exactly like my father. And, you know, and, and this applies both to our strengths and our weaknesses. Your parents are probably one of the most formative influences in your life, and both their strengths and their weaknesses pass down to you. And so uh, the Bible has a concept called generational sin, um, and the Bible has a concept where the sins of the fathers get passed down to the sins of the sons, or get passed down to the sons. And when we look at modern um, science, when we look at the way that um, biologists and sociologists try to understand these human relationships, we have terms for that. We have the term genetics, right? Where you, your father passes down um, his DNA, his like genetic material to you, and that predisposes you towards certain diseases. Um, it predisposes you to have certain strengths. Um, and in the same way, uh, we are a combination of genetics and environment, or people call it nature and nurture. So you have an innate genetic code that predisposes you one way, and then not only that, your parents nurture you, and the environment that you are raised in, in your home, has a huge influence on the type of person you become. And so uh, this... If you, if you think highly of your parents, this means you are encouraged. 
because you're like, I have a lot of the strengths that my parents had. And if you grow up in a really like healthy family, you're like, I have a lot of these advantages. I feel great. I have, you know, I'm good. I've, I was raised right. My parents loved me. If you're not coming from that place, if you're coming from a dysfunctional family, if you feel like God kind of dealt you the short of an end of the stick when it comes to your genetics, to your nurture, um, this passage is extraordinarily hopeful for you. And so I hope that as we read through it briefly, um, you'll be able to have hope for your life, no matter what circumstances you've been through. And this is super dumb, but I kept on thinking about Star Wars, where in The Empire Strikes Back, Star Wars number two, there is a huge shocking revelation that happens near the end of the movie, where Darth Vader is fighting, <laughs> spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Star Wars number two, which is a movie from the, the, what, the 80s, then I'm apologize, uh, just close your ears, I'm gonna spoil it. Oh yeah, whatever, Peter. Um, I only acknowledge the existence of the first three. Um, so Darth Vader is this evil bad guy and Luke Skywalker is part of the Rebel Alliance and they're fighting against the evil empire and then they're having this sword fight when he's trying to re like rescue his friends and then um, Darth Vader chops off his arm and then um, he's, he like sticks out his gloved, black gloved hand and he says in his like James Earl Jones voice, Luke, I can't do it. Um, he says, Luke, I am your father. And then Luke says, no, that can't be true. That's impossible. Like, it's, I'm serious. It's, it's a really funny, it's really funny. And he kind of sounds like that. If you watch the movie, if you haven't seen the movie, you're like, what the heck are you doing, Daniel? If you've seen the movie, that's exactly what it's like. Um, and so Luke is forced to confront the fact that, like, why does Luke reject Darth Vader's um, statement that he's his father? Because it means something about who Luke is. If Darth Vader is his father, then Luke realizes, I have the same potential for tremendous evil and atrocities within me that this evil man Darth Vader does. And so he cannot accept the fact yet that he is Darth Vader's son because he thinks he's a good guy. He's not a bad guy. But here's the thing. Like, we all have to come to this point where we're willing to acknowledge, I am my father's son. I am my father's daughter. Um, I have the same material in me, both by nature and nurture, um, and so you, you end up to be like your parents. Um, now, but there's hope. So let's, let's go ahead and look real quick. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna start off by talking about historical narrative. Um, so this is a specific genre within the Bible, and my hope for this is when you guys come to historical narratives when you're reading the Bible, they're really confusing, they feel really weird to read, and you don't really have any sort of foothold where you can try to understand and unpack what they mean for you and what God is trying to show us through these historical narratives. So um, let me go ahead and try to introduce historical narratives in a way that can help you understand how to read them, just real briefly, and then hopefully we'll, this will show you where I'm getting this kind of like father, like son point from our passage. So uh, let me go ahead and say three points about historical narratives. Um, a historical narrative is what it means. It's a history about a group, or it's a history about a person. And so in the book of 1 Kings, it is a historical narrative 
about the rise and fall of kings in Israel, right? And so the first thing I want you to notice is it's descriptive, um, not immediately prescriptive, okay? So uh, one thing this means is the, the vast majority of the Bible is story. And as a culture, we're not super good at learning from stories. So this is kind of like when you read uh, Grimm's fairy tales, or when you watch Disney movies, you notice that these are narratives, which means they don't tell you truth in propositions. They don't, they don't say, I mean, honestly, that like, that thing over there is like a good example of kind of propositional truth, where um, this is like the APPS, um, uh, I don't know what you call that, but on the left side, there are challenges. On the right side, there, there are life skills they want their preschoolers to develop by the age that they're 25. So it's really interesting. And um, a lot of this would basically be like, here, here's the difference between a moral and a story. Let me give you the, you see the first one hitting. This is a moral. Don't hit your sister. That's bad. Okay? But then this thing also kind of tells a story too. And the story kind of goes like this. If you are the type of brother that hits your sister, when you grow up, no one's going to like you. You won't be successful in romantic relationships if you're the type of guy that hits your sister. No one will hire you if you hit your sister. So like, and then you tell a story like, oh, once, once upon a time there was a little boy and he, all the time, he hit his sister and the, all of his APPS teachers kept on telling him, don't hit your sister, you're not going to become a successful person when you're 25, but he didn't listen to them. And so he grew up, got older, he failed out of school, and then he became a failure as a result of him not listening. So like, that's the story, that's a moral, right? And so a historical narrative is telling a story, and in many cases, there are kind of morals that you get from the story that the author wants to communicate. But first of all, it's a story and it's descriptive, and so we should put ourselves within the story and see ourselves to some degree as the characters where we, um, we uh, try to avoid their mistakes and foolishness, and we imitate their wisdom. But the other thing that this is about is it's descriptive of God's action in history. It's God revealing himself and acting in history in a way that creates change, okay? So it's descriptive. Number two, historical narratives are selective. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but history books and historians do the work of selecting what events are important and curating them, okay? Because you can't tell everything. The, if, if your history textbook was a literal second-by-second -second description of everything that happened in the world, it would be so incredibly boring, and you would never be able to catch up, right? Because you would have to, like, it's like, Daniel was in the first minute of preaching his sermon, and then he said, blah, 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 blah. And, like, imagine your history book was like that, right? Where it's like, George Washington was zero years old. He came out of his mother, and then he was like a kid, and then he was, you know, what did I, punched his sister, and then, I don't know. Um, so, it, like, that's not how history works. Historians have to choose and select what's important in order to communicate their point, okay? So what are the highlights? What are the most important turning points of American history? George Washington 
crossed the river Delaware, whatever happened, and I don't know, there, some, there's a painting of that or something. Um, anyway, so the historical narratives in the book of First Kings are extraordinarily selective. And here's a, here's a challenge for you. Um, when you're reading the book of First Kings and Second Kings and historical narratives, you ask the question, what is the author trying to communicate and what is God trying to communicate based on what he pays attention to? Okay? So there are actually patterns that you see in the historical narrative, and they basically take an entire, we're going to read about this, but this, this author, this historian, takes an entire person's life, many, many kings' lives, and reduces it to basically a paragraph this big over and over again. And so the question to ask is, why do they do that? What do they pay attention to? And what is important in them selecting these sections of history to pay attention to? And then the third point I want to see, it's evaluative. And the kind of criteria by which these authors judge the kings in the book of First and Second Kings is very different than the criteria a normal historian would use about a history book, okay? There's actually kind of a spiritual perspective, kind of like a God's eye perspective on these kings, and that is the criteria by which they evaluate these books, okay? So we're going to see all three of these things, how it's descriptive, how it's selective, how it's evaluative, and then we're going to try to unpack um, this point about fathers and sons or parents and children from this uh, text, okay? So let's keep going. Um, if you guys, so what I want you guys to do is um, read through chapter 15 and 16 of First Kings, um, maybe later on today or later this week, and I want you to look for patterns or formulas and see if you can find this formula or pattern that repeats itself over and over and over again. This is all part of the genre of historical narrative where it's, there's a formula by which the author evaluates these kings, okay? So go ahead to the formula one, Jer. This is the formula that I found, and see how many times you can find this formula repeated in the book of First Kings and Second Kings. It's all over the place. So the formula is something like this. This is not exact, but it's the basic gist. In the blank year of King Blank, King Blank began to rule in Judah or Israel. This is like a formula that repeats itself over and over and over again. This king did what was blank in the sight of the Lord. And then the rest of the section is an explanation of what he did that was blank in the sight of the Lord. I'm serious. Like, if you read through this, you will find this pattern repeated over and over and over again. And so what's really interesting here is there's repetition. Um, there's uh, this, the most important quality about these kings' life is what they do in the sight of the Lord. And that's the evaluative criteria by which the author gauges these kings' lives. So right off the bat, I want you guys to think about this for a second. When you think about your life, what criteria um, do you think makes your life valuable or worthy? And then is it the same perspective as these biblical authors? If this author was to write about your life, um, what would he find to be important? What does God find to be important when it comes to your life? And what do you find to be important? Or what does society find to be important about a person? So society has all these things like, oh, this person is important if they're really accomplished or if they're really beautiful 
or they have a lot of influence on the internet, or you know they they got like multiple advanced degrees, or they like started their own business that became a multi-billion-dollar corporation. Like those are all the things that people care about. But this author writes about kings, and he pays very little attention to all of the po political, military um, accomplishments that these kings do when you compare it to um, him paying attention to the state of their hearts and their worship before God, okay? For the author, the state of a person's heart before God over the course of their life is the single defining characteristic about a person, and everything else comes out of that state of their hearts. And we've been seeing this to some degree in the passages before, okay? So here's the formula of the kings. Um, now let me give you some examples of different kings. I'm gonna show you the formula, and then I'm going to, like, th this is actually the feel of reading the book of First Kings, especially chapters 15 and 16 and some other chapters. And see again, can you see the formula in these uh, texts? So this is um, First Kings chapter 15, uh, verse 1 through 8 or so. So now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, so in the blank year of King blank, the son of blank, Abijam, began to reign over Judah. So that's the first part of the formula. Let's look at the next part of the formula. He walked in all the sins that his father did before him. Okay? So this is evaluating the king's life based on whether he lives a life pleasing to God and is true to God um, or whether he doesn't. And then the other thing you see here is you introduce the sins of the father are passed down to the sons. The, it's in their DNA where um, because Jeroboam worshipped other gods and led Israel in worshipping other gods and created his own system of worship that went against the, um, the law in Deuteronomy and all that other stuff, um, that was Jeroboam's sin. And his son Abijam did the same thing or Abijam, I don't know how to pronounce all these names. Um, so he walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Okay? So you see the formula. That's the first king, um, Abijam. Let's look at the next king, um, uh, Nadab. This is from 1 Kings chapter 15, 25 through 33. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, the king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years. So again, blank the king of blank, or blank the son of blank began to reign over blank the year of blank. Um, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin which he made Israel to sin. So it's the same thing. The son repeats the pattern of the father. And as I was reflecting about my own relationship with my dad, um, going through this, uh, like I am totally like my dad. And I, I would, there are, there are positives and negatives about that. And when I interact with my dad, um, I personally experience more of the negatives than the positives. And so, like, his, the parts of him, there are many parts of him that are, like, irritating to me. But then again, I, like, I, I, I'm, like, getting frustrated with my dad. And then the next morning, I'm, like, looking in the mirror. And I'm, like, I am exactly like my father. Um, I have so many of those same characters. I'm not exactly the same, but I have many of the same characteristics. Um, and so this is just true, 
right? You see this in like all types of different relationships. So um, if you are interested in sociology, if you're interested in like um, addiction studies or different things like this, um, you realize a lot of uh, chronic drug addicts or drug users, um, they were raised in an environment where their parents were addicts. Alcoholics, same thing happens. Um, uh, there, there are all types of, like, in a sense, genetic predispositions that lead someone towards these, these problems and these issues, but then the nurture also really impacts that. So let, like, let's pretend for a second, if you're watching a cop show, um, like I, I, there's the show Criminal Minds that I really like, and these guys are FBI profilers who can basically predict who a person is based on the way that they create, they commit crimes. And the whole idea behind it is we can kind of know exactly who you are based on how you act because the pattern repeats itself over and over again and they have enough data that they glean from the crime scene to figure out what type of person did it so they can narrow down the um, criminals and find the right one. Um, and you see in that show all the time where it's like there is, a, there is this person growing up was absolutely neglected by their parents. Or this person growing up, they were a child of divorce or whatever it might be, and because of that, they didn't get enough love in their lives. And so when they grew up, they didn't know how to have healthy relationships. And so as a result of that, um, they had to go uh, to more and more like terrible crimes to get some kind of sense of meaning or power or to feel loved by someone. They had to like, they had to control the other person so that they would love them or be in a relationship with them, and therefore they commit this crime. That's the cycle of sin and generational sin. And if you look in your own life, you see the same thing happening too, and I do too, where the sins of my father are my sins. And these are struggles that I experience over a long period of time. They're not something that you just fix in a heartbeat. Um, and so you see this in the passage, the sins of the father passed down to the sins of the sons. So let's keep on going. Let's look at the next king. Basha from 1 Kings uh, chapter 15, 33 on. In the third year of Asa, the king of Judah, Basha, the son of Ahijah, began to reign over all Israel at Terzah, and he reigned 24 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. Same formula over and over and over again. And so when you're reading this by yourself, you're probably thinking, why does the author have to keep on repeating himself over and over again? And the answer to that is because by writing the history in this way, he shows how monotonous and tedious and repetitive these sin patterns and cycles are in the world. This is actually a really profound view of history, where if you want to understand why the world is the way it is, and why people's lives are so messed up and society is so broken in so many ways, one perspective is it is this sin, generational sin pattern that just plays out over and over and over again. There's that saying where it says, hurt people hurt people, right? Another way, uh, and you can basically take that phrase and insert any negative characteristic into it. So neglected people, people who are neglected by their parents, neglects their children, and it's a cycle. Addicts, um, the, the par parents um, who are addicted, their kids become addicted. Often, not in every case, but this is a cycle that you see. Another way of putting it, angry people raise angry kids. 
When, it, when a parent is abusive to their kids, neglects their kids, the kid becomes angry, and then they repeat the same pattern. When there are, um, you see this in generals and in nations, where nations are violent, um, when power changes hands, that next king, that next president, whatever, is also violent. And so you can see this is just, it's contagious, basically. Sin is contagious, and it's this pattern that keeps on repeating all over history. And so, again, this is kind of bleak, right? But this is what the author is trying to communicate to us, where this is how repetitive the cycle is. And so king after king after king does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. They follow after the sin of Jeroboam. They follow the sins of their fathers. Nothing changes. Everything is the same. And so you, it's monotonous. It's tedious. And the commentators pointed this out where they're saying, like, this is the point of the author. He wants to show you how sin is actually really boring. Sin is boring. When you look at someone, when you look at sin, um, initially you think, oh, it'll be so much fun, it'll be great. Um, but then you start becoming enslaved and controlled by sin, and then your life gets really boring. So if you think about it, um, when, you're like a, when you're a high school kid, you're like, oh man, you know, like drinking alcohol is super duper fun. And okay, the Bible does not say that alcohol is necessarily sinful or bad. Different Christians have different views on that. But as a high school kid, you're like, oh my gosh, that would be the most fun thing in the world. And my classmates, they have all these fun stories of like, dude, I got so wasted this weekend and I did this crazy thing. Now, okay, that seems really fun. And maybe you get good stories out of that. But is it fun or is it boring when you are entirely controlled by alcohol to the point you're dependent on it, your life never changes because your whole life is centered around buying alcohol. You don't have fun, you don't have new experiences, you don't go on adventures because you are trapped and controlled by this one single boring thing. And it's self-destructive. I mean, that's, that's what this, that's what this um, passage is saying, that sin looks really fun, but when you look at an entire person's life, um, think of it a different way. You might think a person in college is really cool if they drink a lot and party, but if they're like a 55-year-old and all they do on the weekends is go to college dorms and try to party with the other college kids, there's something wrong. There's something messed up there, right? They don't change. And so what the Bible is saying is actually like, you don't want to, if you want to be a boring person, then do this. And there's actually one king in this passage who seems to be controlled by alcohol. And so the, the passage says actually like, like um, uh, which one was it? It was the guy who got killed by the um, Omri. Anyway, um, so he was drunk. And then one of his generals saw that he was drunk. He basically spent all of his time drinking. And so his general was like, this guy is worthless, useless. He's not a good general. He's not a good king. So I'm going to kill him and take power. And so the Bible is saying that, right? Where different people have different sins. But what sin has in common is it actually leads to a really boring life where you're controlled by it. And it's enslaving. And not only that, there's implications for the people around you. It's contagious. This is all really bleak all really tough, right? But you can, can you see how the historical narrative is actually the medium itself, the genre itself communicates this message where king after king after king after king does what is evil in the sight of the Lord, all right? Um, now, 
Let's get to the next point. The first one is this is a description of what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with me and what's wrong with us. Um, this is the sin cycle, the generational sin cycle. This is the enslavement and tedium of sin when we follow after it and worship other gods other than God. But here's the thing. Let's read about the king who breaks the cycle, okay? So there are basically nine kings in this section. And um, if you want to understand the book of First and Second Kings, one important piece of context you have to know is there's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So the southern kingdom is where Judah is and Jerusalem is, and the northern kingdom is what Jeroboam, um, Jeroboam, Rehoboam, Rehoboam was a king of the was the king of Israel. There is a civil war, and so they split into two, and every single northern kingdom king did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Every single one. Throughout the entire book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, there is no single good northern kingdom king. There are only a few good southern kingdom kings. And these are the ones where they break the cycle. Um, now, um, I was thinking especially about, so throughout this whole thing, I, I was thinking about my relationship with my dad. If you guys uh, don't know a lot about my dad, um, he came from a really tough background. And I don't know, maybe like you OD guys, he's like told you a little bit about his family history and stuff like that. Um, what, what I would say is he came from um, a neglectful, abusive family. Um, there was divorce and dysfunction and substance abuse in his, in his family. And he was raised in that. And he would tell you like he has a lot of like lasting, he was impacted in that way, and he has a lot of lasting dysfunction that's come out of his upbringing. Um, but what's so amazing to me is because my dad uh, came to know Jesus when he was in high school, um, God used him to break the cycle, where his family situation, and honestly, I'm a product of this, my dad's family situation, super duper messed up. And I won't even go into details, but it was super duper messed up, like poor tough, like really bad situation. My mom in Taiwan, her family situation was also really messed up. And she became a Christian, and in many ways, she has lasting impact from her parents and from like the kind of dysfunction within her family. But do you know what? Um, because she became, uh, no, came to know Jesus, she also broke the cycle in so many different ways, where both of my parents loved me so much and definitely not perfect. I definitely still experience a lot of that dysfunction, but my life as a child and growing up with my parents was infinitely better than it would have been if my parents had not become Christian and God had basically changed their lives by the gospel that they could break this cycle of neglect and abuse and dysfunction. And that's the power of God to take a history that's incredibly bleak incredibly repetitive and boring and monotonous. Sin begets sin, begets sin, begets sin. But then wait a second, God breaks the cycle in certain people. And so, I mean, this is kind of the main point. I mean, I'm not, I'm not even, I'm kind of like out of the text now, but whatever. Um, you guys, if you guys are going through the impact of generational sin in your life, and we all are to some degree, I just want you to know, God, when you're struggling with these things, Part of the reason you're struggling is because it's generational sin 
It's genetic. It's nurture. But not only that, you're struggling because God is working in you to break the cycle. If God didn't want you to break the cycle, you wouldn't struggle. You would just do it, right? And so I hope this is so encouraging for you, where the power of God, if you know Jesus, if you trust him, you don't have to be hopeless and you don't have to be captive to these generational sins, even though you will still experience the impact from them in many ways. And then if you think about it, God puts different challenges and struggles in our lives so that we can help different people. So for example, um, I, I believe that based on genetics and maybe based on nurture too, I struggled a lot with depression when I was growing up and I still have depressive tendencies. But he allows me to struggle with that so that I can hopefully comfort and help other people who struggle with that. And in a sense, I can be a person who can minister to those people. And so if you're struggling with like substance abuse, if you're struggling with like anger or whatever it might be, part of the reason you struggle is because God has a vision for your life where he doesn't want you to just repeat the cycle, he wants you to break it. And he wants you to help other people break free of the, that, that bondage and slavery. And so let's look at the king who breaks the cycle real quick. I'm, I'm going to go through this pretty quick. Um, all of these kings did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Look at 1 Kings chapter 15, verses 9 through 15. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land, removed all the idols that his father made. He also removed um, Makkah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image for Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook of Kidron. Now, what's going on here? All the kings were worshiping false idols. All the kings were turning away from God. And Asa took a stand and he said, I am going to be courageous and break the cycle even though it comes at tremendous cost to me. Now, do you see the cost that he has to bear in order to break the cycle? Um, he puts away the male uh, prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his father made. In breaking the cycle, he has to stand up and say, my parent, my dad raised me like this. All the people in the land are used to this idol worship and having these values, but I'm not gonna continue it. I'm gonna tear down worship to any other God but the true living God of Israel. Um, so because he did this, there would be thousands of people who would, he would become unpopular with as a king. There would be tons of people who would say, why are you tearing down our place of worship? Why are you doing that? And so he paid a public cost by doing this. And this was out of his desire to break the cycle of false worship and worship God. Not only that, he removed Makkah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image for Asherah. And this one is really crazy to me. You have to kind of fill in the details of this um, and imagine this. So um, this is basically pitting family members against family members because they have different religious um, values where he, he basically cannot let his mother, whom I'm sure he loves, and there's in, like interesting backstory with this person. We don't, we're not totally sure what the deal is. Um, but he removed her from power because she worshipped um, the Ash, like Asherah, which is a, a different god. And so can you imagine how hard it would be for him to be a king and to confront the queen mother, 
This is like, she's like an evil Disney queen. And she has so much power and influence and prestige in everyone's eyes. And he's basically like saying, no, you can't rule in this way. You can't have that influence because you're leading people in false worship. That's cost. And then it, he keeps on going where later on he actually takes um, treasure from, uh, he finds treasure and riches and wealth and brings it into the house of the Lord. In verse, um, at the end he says, he brought into the house of the Lord the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts, silver, gold, and vessels. And it says, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all of his days. And so what's so crazy is there are two bad kings in Judah in a row. There are two bad kings, and so you think everything is going downhill. This cycle cannot be broken. It's all downhill. But then God brings up this king Asa who is true to God, and his heart was true to God. And he's a cycle breaker. He's actually doing so much good in directing the whole kingdom of Israel to turn to God after worshiping idols. Um, and so this is so incredible. Now, what you learn about Asa is he's actually not perfect either. And his heart was wholly true to God, but when it came to political situations, he was afraid like any other king, and he took the same treasure that he put in the house of the Lord and used it to bribe a foreign king so that foreign king would help him politically and militarily. He was basically under siege from one king, and then there was another king that king had a treaty with. Sorry, this is really confusing, but um, he bribed a different king to break his treaty with a king who is attacking him, so that king would attack the king attacking him, so the king would leave him alone. Okay, I don't know if any of you understood what I just said, but just read the passage, you'll figure it out. Um, and so he's taking the same gifts and sacrifices that he gave to the house of the Lord and using it out of fear, because he can't trust in God. He sh like really what he should do is trust in God to deliver Israel, because God has promised he'll do that, but instead, he uses political um, like machinations to, uh, and it actually works out where the king stops attacking him, and he has some like degree of peace. Um, but it's not good. So his heart is not fully true. Now the good news about this is when we see even this good king whose heart is wholly after God, he's not perfect, and none of us are perfect. But when we read about Asa, we have to think. Who is the king who was perfect for us? Who is the king who was able to break every single cycle at the same time? Um, it was Jesus in coming to this world where everyone in the world, like there are so many passages that where it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that basically means none of us can break out of this cycle by ourselves. No matter how hard we try, we are powerless to change apart from the intervention of God. And God divinely intervenes through the person of Jesus where he broke every single human cycle. He was perfectly man. He was perfectly God. He, took, he looked at sinful humanity and said, I want to free you from your bondage by dying on the cross and rising again so that you can be reconciled to God and experience the same freedom and fullness of life that Jesus had. That's what Jesus came to do. And so when Jesus comes to you and you encounter him personally, when something in your heart starts stirring when you read about Jesus or you know the gospel and you say, there's something so appealing about that. I recognize my powerlessness 
I recognize that try as I might, I keep on falling into these same habits. And what Jesus promises is when you believe in him, um, he sets you free. He sets you free from bondage and slavery to sin. And so the amazing thing about being a Christian is when you believe the gospel and trust him, the rest of your life, no matter what happens, no matter what you've done in the past, no matter how hard you struggle, continue to struggle with sin, your life, you will be a bondage breaker. You will be someone who breaks the cycle and someone who can help other people when it comes to that too. And the vision of our church is that broken and captive people will be healed and set free in Christ Jesus. And this is what Jesus does. And your lives will become a living witness where this is how fully and completely Jesus Christ defeats sin in your life. When you fail, when you sin, Jesus, the blood of Jesus completely covers you and God does not hold it against you based on the sacrifice of Jesus. So you are completely forgiven. Not only that, even if you do fall into sin and you fail and you sin in that moment, that is an opportunity for you to repent and receive the gospel again, where in that moment you feel unworthy, you feel like God will reject you, but then no, because of Jesus, God loves you and accepts you and receives you in that moment while you're sinning. And so you can remember the goodness of the gospel even after you fail, even after you sin. That's another way he defeats sin. The third way, when you fall into repetitive sins like I do, those repetitive sins, um, you learn how to fight them personally. You fail over and over again. But as you fail over and over again, you gradually begin to understand yourself more. You understand the sin you're dealing with more. You understand the heart issues that are leading you to go back to that sin over and over again. And that means you are like a doctor. You're like an experienced warrior who can help other people get out of it. And so if you don't give up, if you keep on letting God work in you and are receptive to him, just never let go of him no matter what you're going through, no matter how many times you relapse, just don't let go of him and God will make you break the cycle in your life and use you to break the cycle in other people's lives the same way he did with Asa, okay? Um, now, yeah, yeah, I like that. It's <laughs> good. We normally don't do that, but anyway. So I, I just want to end with this. Um, you are re if you are a Christian, you have been recreated in Christ to be a cycle breaker, and let me point you to one passage that I hope can encourage you, no matter where you are, and I hope this can help you see who you are in Christ. Um, this is from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, and this is one of the most um, beautiful passages for me that kind of gives you a history, a spiritual biography of what your life will be like as a Christian. Um, this is just in the context of where Ephesians says, by grace we are saved through faith. So we are not saved by being cycle breakers. We're not saved by achieving morally or any of that. We are purely saved by grace while we are still sinners based on the sacrifice of Christ. But as a result of being saved and justified by faith, we are his workmanship, Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. We're his workmanship. And the, the term there means we are like an art object that God creates. So he takes the mess of your life and he makes it into something beautiful in Christ. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so I don't care what you've done in the past, 
how much struggle you've had, the bad stuff you've done, it doesn't matter. When you receive the gospel, God makes you a new creation, and your purpose now is good works. And it is possible for you to do good works. And this, isn't just, this just doesn't just come from your strength, from the areas that you think you're the best at, from your talents or skills or whatever it might be. This also comes from your weaknesses, where God redeems those sufferings and weaknesses and flaws that you have so you can minister to other people because you understand, their, you understand them a way that other people can't. Like, I can understand someone who goes through depression in a way someone who doesn't get depressed can't. At the same time, everyone's suffering is different to some degree. But at least the person can understand you to some degree, right? Okay, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand. You don't have to, like, strive to make your life amazing. Because God actually prepares good works for you beforehand if you recognize the opportunities. And so, let me give you a dumb image. You know, like on pirate ships, there's that thing at the top called like a crow's nest, where it's that like little thing that a person stands in at the very top of the pirate ship, and he like looks around, he's like this, you know, like looking for bad guys. I want you guys to be in the crow's nest, when it, except instead of looking for like other pirates or looking for people to rob as a pirate, because pirates do that, you look for good works. God is preparing good works for you to do in your everyday lives all the time. All the time. God is, for, for example, um, someone messages me asking for help or prayer. That is a good work that God prepared for me to walk in. Um, you're just, you just see someone like at Starbucks and the barista seems kind of down. So you're like, you know, hey, are you doing okay? Like, or you just pray for them quietly without even telling them. Or you just say like, hey, what's up? How are you doing? I hope you have a good day. You know? Good works, God prepared to, and not only this, your entire life is going to become this. God made you very specially in your strengths and your weaknesses, and he uses both so you can be a, a person who lives a life of good works, who brings healing and grace to all the people around you. And you break the cycle in your life, he breaks the cycle in your life so you can help other people break the cycle in theirs. He prepared good works beforehand, and then this is the part, our personal responsibility, that we should walk in them. Where one of the things that I really think is tough is it's so easy for us to be so consumed and overwhelmed by life circumstances, by our failures, by our worries, that we're always looking at ourselves and we're missing the opportunities to walk in good works and love and help other people. And so God doesn't do the good works for us. We walk in them. God provides, it's like he sets out the platter of good works for us, but we're the ones who has to have to take it and eat it, you know? He, he like lays out the path for us, but we got to walk it. It says we should walk in them. We should live in them. And so this is what it means to mature as a Christian. It means more and more you expect God will prepare good works for you every single day, every single day at school. What are the good works God is preparing for me? Every single day at work. What are the good works he has prepared for me? With my family, every single day, how can I try to love my family and show them the love of God even when it's tough for me to interact with them? And can you imagine if you are a person who tries, who just tries with all of your heart to live this way, can you imagine what impact you'll have on the people around you? You will not perpetuate the cycle of generational sin. 
your kids or the people who are younger than you, they will be able to thank God. Like I can thank God for my parents for breaking the cycle so that my life is better than theirs. And I haven't had to deal with the same things that they do. That's what God does. That's why God sent Jesus to this world. That's what God, how God envisions our lives. And so no matter where you're at, don't give up. Like this is going to be your life. This is the promise of God for your life. You will do good works. God will use you mightily to set people free with the gospel, and you will experience the grace of God whenever you falter and fail, and he will keep you from falling. Um, he's the only one who can keep us from falling, and he promises that he'll do that. Um, let's pray. Dear Lord, um, I praise you that you looked at us in our mess and our sin, and you sought us with compassion and gentleness and love, and you were willing to pay such a great cost to break the cycle of sin and enslavement in our lives so that we could experience freedom and reconciliation with God. I pray, Lord, that for those of us who are discouraged by our weaknesses, discouraged by our circumstances, by our family histories, by our genetic makeup, whatever it might be, Lord, that you would give them hope, that your Holy Spirit would be inspiring them um, and reminding them of who they are in Christ, made new, a new creation, um, that they might be able to live lives of good works and love people around them. Um, I pray you would give us strength and give us grace and give us perseverance as we struggle with sin, um, that you would uh, just help us get through and help us point our eyes on you and your uh, salvation. So we pray um, that through your spirit and through your word, um, broken and captive people would be healed and set free, and that we would be those people who would be able to praise you for how you set us free, and we'd be instruments of healing in your hands who faithfully live out cycle breaking and help people break their cycles. We love you so much and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.